they say that in order to be successful in real estate, there are three words that will make you the most success, and those words are location, location, and location. And when we're studying the Bible, it, instead of location, the three words we need to remember to get the most out of our Bible study is context, context, and context. What happens before and what happens after whatever it is that we're reading. And we talked in our Sunday school class about the familiarity of, of how familiar we are with certain Bible stories will make us read over them quickly and we assume that we know all that there is to know about something. And, and one of those stories that we are very uh, familiar with is, is our lesson today, the, what we call the triumphal entry. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke's account, but before we go there, we're going to go around a little bit. All four Gospels uh, talk about the triumphal entry. It's one of few uh, accounts of Jesus' life where all four Gospels give an account of it. Uh, but we need to know the context, and as I was putting this lesson together this week, it I have, I've changed my mind about something I've preached in the triumphal entry and I've heard preached. Quite often we think that, well, the, crowd, the same crowd that uh, said, praise the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Sunday morning of triumphal entry. By Friday they were saying, crucify him, crucify him. We talk about how fickle the crowd is and I've preached that and I've heard a lot of preachers preach that, but I, I've about come to the conclusion, and it's in Luke's account that kind of made me change my mind about this. I think for the most part, it's two different crowds. I think there's one crowd that's active there at the triumphal entry, and it's another crowd altogether that says, crucify him, crucify him. We'll look at that bunch next week. But we're going to look at the triumphal entry this morning, but before we look at the triumphal entry, I want to set the context. I want to look at what comes before the triumphal entry, and then what comes right after, and maybe that will help us get a little bit more out of the triumphal entry itself. So if you turn to Matthew 20, that's where we're going to start this morning. Matthew chapter 20. And I encourage you for homework, if you'd like to do that, to... We're going to study the triumphal entry from Luke's account, but go back and read Matthew, Mark, and John's account of the same story because they'll, they'll bring out different details of the same event, and that's one blessing that we have by having all four events. But Matthew's triumphal entry is Matthew 21, but if we look at Matthew chapter 20, what happens right before the triumphal entry, Jesus in verses 1 through uh, 18, or 16 rather, he gives a uh, parable about the kingdom, about the kingdom that's coming, the, uh, all the people that worked in the kingdom. Some worked for a long time, some worked for a very little time, yet they all got the same reward, the same pay. There was that uh, account given. Jesus in verses 17 to 19, it gives probably, this is the third prediction that he gives of his death. This one's probably the most significant and the plainest. Notice what Jesus tells his apostles. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, 
Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. So Jesus very plainly tells his disciples, I'm fixing to die. Uh, the, the religious leaders are going to kill me. I'm going to be there in the tomb for three days, and then I rise again. And then of all things, in verses 20 to uh, 28, James and John and the mother of James and John, asked, after Jesus says, I'm going to die, they have a discussion about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Uh, James and John's mother asked Jesus, I, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I know you're getting ready to die, and I know you're going to be beaten, and I know times are going to get hard for you, but we need to talk about my boys. And when you come into the kingdom, I, I would like for one of my sons to be on your right hand and one of my sons to be seated on your left hand. And Jesus says that that's above my pay grade. That's the Planck's paraphrase of that. Jesus says my father determines those things. And so they have a conversation about the kingdom. And then in verses 29 to 34, Matthew says there are two blind men that Jesus heals. Mark's account tells us that one of those blind men are Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was uh, one of those blind men that were healed right before the triumphal entry. So then in chapter 21, we have the triumphal entry. Uh, notice John. Go to John chapter 12. John gives an account that it's right before the triumphal entry that is not in the other three uh, Gospels, I don't think. John 12, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and that is where there's a party at Bethany at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, it's right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. This is where Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. Or she takes some oil and uh, pours it over the feet of Jesus and then dries the oil uh, with her hair. And it says there uh, in verse 6, Judas wanted, Judas fusses and says, uh, this was expensive oil. This is expensive perfume. We could have used that money to take care of the poor. And John points out that Judas was a treasurer and he really wasn't interested in the poor. He wanted to get his hands on the money. But notice what Jesus says in verse 7. Jesus says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Uh, you'll have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. As I was putting this lesson together, it really made me think about the fact that of all the people that might have understood what Jesus was about to go through, Mary may have understood it more than any of them because she takes the opportunity to anoint the feet of Jesus as her Lord and her Savior. And she, I think, is fully aware of what is about to happen. You notice in the next few verses, verses 9 through 11, that Lazarus is walking around and this causes the religious leaders to put a target not only on Jesus' back, but also to put a target on the back of Lazarus. Because 
Jesus has raised him from the dead, and the proof is in Lazarus. You know, a lot of these other miracles that the, the Jewish leaders maybe could say, well, maybe that miracle, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Maybe this person's confused with that one. With Lazarus, he had been Lazarus was he he lived in Bethany, so he's it's a suburb of Jerusalem. It's right outside a home base for the religious leaders. Lazarus was dead four days. There's no doubt that Lazarus is dead, and now Lazarus is walking around. So the it's the times are getting very tense for Jesus. Uh, we talked in our Sunday school lesson early in Jesus's ministry. Jesus is careful to not upset the apple cart with the religious leaders. But Jesus understands, before Jesus ever said, let there be light, he said, it is finished. So he knows full well he's got a cross waiting for him. And as he gets closer to that time, he starts to ratchet up the tension between himself and the Jewish leaders. So if you'll turn over now to the book of Luke, with that being said, what happened before the triumphal entry, The triumphal entry is Luke 28, or Luke 19, rather, 28 to 44. Look what Jesus does the next day. The context before the triumphal entry, now the context after the triumphal entry. Jesus goes into the temple and he casts out the money changers. He runs those folks out of the temple. And at this point, Jesus has pretty much punched his ticket uh, to be to be crucified, to be killed. So with that thought in mind, now let's read Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44 for our text this morning. When he said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he has said it to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on it. As he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King! who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. We see here in this text, Jesus the King. And as we read in verse 29, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem. Luke, go all the way back in Luke 9, verse uh, Chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And from 951 up until this chapter, it's called the travel document. It talks about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem for this final time. And he's been on the way to Jerusalem. He's been in Jericho, which is about 14 miles away. He has come to Zacchaeus' house. Remember the tax collector that Jesus goes into his home? And he's making his way into Jerusalem, and he's going up the Mount of Olives, and near the top of Mount, the Mount of Olives are two little communities called Bethphage and Bethany. Bethany means uh, house of dates, D-A-T-E-S. Not dates like boys and girls, but... Dates like the fruit. And Bethphage means house of unripe figs. Just for your Bible study, when you're reading our Old Testament Bible readings, when you see the word Beth, B-E-T-H, uh, that word means house. Bethlehem is house of God. Uh, here, uh, Bethany is house of dates. Bethphage is house of unripe figs. So when you see Beth something... That means house of something. And so anyway, that's these two cities, and they are on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and Jesus tells two of his disciples to go find a colt that had never been ridden before. They were to untie the colt and bring the colt to Jesus, and if anyone had asked anything, they were to reply that, well, the Lord needs it. I had a couple of thoughts about this. First of all, the guy, the two disciples that got donkey duty, do you wonder why they, do you reckon they thought, why do we have to go get the donkey? You know, if you have a bunch of kids, why do we have to clean the mess? Why, do, why can't my sister, why, why, can't, why do we have to go get the donkey? We might miss something. This is exciting. The kingdom's coming. It's here. We have to go get the donkey. But you know what? If you're working for the Lord, donkey duty's just fine. Amen? Amen? There's a lot of folks that want to do something big for the Lord, but they don't want to do donkey duty. And can I remind all of us that whatever the Lord needs us to do, we ought to be willing to do it. But I also thought when I was reading this, this is the first time, as far as I'm aware, now there may be somewhere else, but I don't think so. As far as I'm aware, this is the first time Jesus rode anything other than a boat. There's been a time or two they've been in a boat. Everywhere they went, they walked. And so I wonder if they, the guy's on donkey doing, or what's he need a donkey for anyway? Why can't we just walk? Why, 
Well, I could just see the folks, uh, those two fellas, fussing among themselves. And I wonder what, if they're wondering, what would Jesus need a colt for? And, and not only that, an unbroken colt. And we're going to understand this is the colt of a donkey. That's significant. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But have you ever thought, those of you who are into horseback riding, uh, Jesus wants a colt. Obviously, the colt's big enough to support him, so it's pretty much a grown donkey. But it's never been ridden before. We, uh, we picture the triumphal entry as Jesus riding peacefully into Jerusalem with the people shouting, Hosanna, the king, and laying down the palm leaves in their clothes. Can I? I'm not much of a horseback person, but I can pretty well guarantee that a colt that's never been ridden before, when someone sets on that colt for the first time, it's going to be anything but peaceful, right? But you know, Jesus sets right on him, and that colt's peaceful. You know why? Because Jesus is master over creation. Jesus is master over everything. That donkey is submissive to his Savior, his Redeemer, his Creator. And I, I think that's a little bit interesting. And even though, verse 32, so those that were sent went their way. They, they obey. They may not have understood, but they obey. That's another thing we need to remember about Jesus. Sometimes Jesus may ask us to do something we don't understand. We need to obey. Uh, we'll figure it out as we go along. If Jesus asks us to do something, there's a reason for it. And as they're loosening the colt, verse 33, one of the owners said to them, Why are you loosening the colt? Where are you going with my colt? They said, The Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. <coughs> Not only was the colt submissive to the, to the desires of Jesus, the colt's owners are submissive to the needs of Jesus. So, I wonder if these two fellows, as they're untying the colt, the owner says, where are you going with my horse or colt? I wonder if they thought, oh, brother. I don't know if they hung horse thieves in uh, Jesus' day or not, but there they are. And so the disciple says, well, the Lord needs him. And they untied him, and off they went. They didn't have any trouble at all. They bring the colt back to, uh, back to Jesus, and it happens just like Jesus says it is going to happen. And verses 35 and 36, they brought this colt to Jesus. Then they threw their own clothes. They took their cloaks their coats, and they put them on the back of the colt, and they set Jesus on the colt. They are treating Jesus just like he is a king about to be presented in front of his people. Uh, and as they went, many spread their clothes on the road. They begin to, to spread their, their, uh, their coats out and their cloaks. This goes back to 2 Kings 9 and verse 13. You can write that, uh, that scripture down and go back and read it. But when uh, Jehu, the ruler of the people, uh, came before the people, they laid their clothes down and 
celebrated that particular instance. And it's sort of like uh, rolling out the red carpet, uh, the, what we would do in our society. They laid their cloaks on the ground. John says that they laid palm leaves on the ground. This is where we get the term Palm Sunday. That goes back to the period between the Testaments when uh, the Syrians took over Israel and a family named Maccabee freed them. Uh, they had a celebration much like this where they paraded the Maccabees through the town and laid down palm leaves. And so that goes back to that particular time. But as Jesus is on the back of this donkey, on the back of this colt, and as even today, there's a place there between Bethany and Jerusalem where it's called the Palm Sunday Road. And you can actually walk along this road. And as you go around the curve outside of Bethany, Jerusalem just spreads out and just comes into sight there in front of you. Uh, and Jesus, Now, Jesus wouldn't have seen the temple dome like the, the, the Muslim... Uh, temple there on the Temple Mount today, but Jesus would have seen the Temple of Herod, which was a beautiful uh, architectural, architectural wonder, and Jesus would have seen the city uh, out in, in all of its glory out in front of him, and as Jesus sees that, I, I wonder what could have been going through Jesus' mind as he sees this. He knew why he was here. Jesus knew that as soon as he entered the city in this manner, in a way in which people were announcing him as king, when the multitudes began to declare him as king, Jesus knew that his ticket for death would be punched. You know, if the chief priests and scribes could murmur, bicker, and try to trap Jesus before. Now Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. We've talked about that. So that wanted him to kill Jesus even more. And when Jesus comes into the city like this, when they the people declare Jesus as king, then that's going to make them want to kill him even greater. And Lazarus is walking around with a target on his back as well. And so here Jesus is. He's getting ready to enter the city. The people are going to praise him as king. This is going to force the Jewish leaders to do something. Uh, understand, Jesus knew what awaited him when he got to Jerusalem. In Luke 5, 9, 51, when, when Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, or toward Jerusalem, Jesus is acknowledging then that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He knows what's going to happen to him at the end of this journey. And so I wonder if he kind of had bittersweet feelings as he gets on the back of this cold and starts to go into the city. But he does go into the city, verse 37. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, Bethany and Bethphage are at the top of the Mount of Olives. Jesus is coming around the road there and starting to go down the Mount of Olives, and then up into Jerusalem. And it, uh, he, he gets there, the whole multitude, notice this phrase, 
the whole multitude of who? The disciples. That is a key word. This is what changed my mind about two different crowds. This is a crowd made up primarily of Jesus' disciples. And so they are begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a quote from Psalm 118. But there's a change. The psalmist says in Psalm 118 verse 26. He said blessed. They, the psalmist said blessed is he. Who can, comes in the name of the Lord. Look what the disciples say in verse 38. Blessed is who? The king. They make a little change there. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there Jesus is. He's, he's riding the back of a colt, the colt of a donkey. Can I point this out to us? That a conquering king, a war king, would have ridden the horse. That would have that they would have recognized Jesus as a conquering king. Jesus rode a donkey. A donkey is a sign of peace. A sign of servanthood. Uh, Zechariah 9 verse 9. You need to write that scripture down. Zechariah prophesies that Messiah will ride a donkey. So this is a fulfillment of scripture. The multitudes, as we've said, most of them are disciples. They begin to praise Jesus as king. They declare the mighty works they had seen Jesus perform. But then the troublemakers show up. The party poopers. In verse 40, or 39 rather. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher! Rebuke your disciples. Teacher, we know you're a rabbi. and We know you're a good teacher. Matter of fact, you teach better than anybody else teaches. But you need to calm these folks down. First of all, for them to declare you king, that's blasphemy. But not only that, Rome's not going to like it very much either. If they hear the Jews declaring somebody else king, they're going to think this is a rebellion against Caesar. And here they'll come bring their soldiers. Jesus, you need to shut them up. Jesus, you need to make them hush. Jesus, you need to make them be quiet. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, I tell you, if these folks were quiet, the rocks would start praising my name. And by the way, in that section of Jerusalem, as you go right into the gate uh, at, at that from Bethany, it's it's rocky hillside. There, there are rocks everywhere, kind of like the last garden I tried to put out, just full of full of rocks. The rocks would cry out. And can I tell you, this goes along with Psalm 148, where Jesus says, "Hallelujah, praise Jehovah, let the heavens praise His name, praise Jehovah in the highest." All his angels praise proclaim. All ye fruitful trees and cedars. Ye hills and mountains high. Stars, moon, 
Praise Jesus. Do y'all remember in Romans chapter 8 in our Roman study? We talked about the fact that all creation right now is groaning for Jesus to make everything right. Creation is waiting for its Redeemer as well. Not only are we waiting for Jesus to set up his earthly kingdom here now, but creation is, is waiting as well. And by the way, rocks are mentioned again within this time frame. In Matthew 27, 51, when Jesus died, if you remember, there was an earthquake and the rocks were split in two. So in a way, when Jesus was silenced temporarily, the rocks did cry out, didn't they? And as we get to verse 41, you would think that Jesus, this would be a happy moment. You would think Jesus would be an emo on an emotional high. After all, the people were praising him as king, and, and that's why he came. Most of our Bibles title this paragraph, The Triumphal Entry. But if you look at Jesus' face, instead of a big smile, there were tears. And they weren't tears of joy or gratitude. Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he weeps. This is one of two times in Scripture Jesus, that Scripture records Jesus wept. In John 11.35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. And Jesus is weeping as he sees Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. And I think he wept for several reasons. As a country and as a nation, the Jews as a whole had rejected Jesus. At this point, Jesus could survey Jerusalem. And he could look forward in time about 40 years. When the Roman Emperor Titus would come and totally level Jerusalem. Thousands of Jews will be crucified and killed. The city will be destroyed, burned, and leveled. And that's what Jesus talks about here in verses 42 to 44. He says not even a stone will be left unturned. Secondly, I think Jesus wept because even those who were hailing him as king, his disciples, they didn't understand what king he was going to be. They thought Jesus was going to be a war king. That Jesus was going to overthrow Rome and set Israel back on its rightful place as the most powerful country in the world. They weren't expecting this kingdom to be spiritual. And at this moment in time, Jesus' kingdom is spiritual. And they weren't expecting that. They didn't understand that. And I think that made Jesus weep. They wanted Jesus to heal the sick. They wanted Jesus to feed their hungry. They wanted Jesus even to raise their dead. But they did not recognize that Jesus came to save their souls. And that made Jesus sad. And as we leave Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and bring this story into 2023. We may not be in Jerusalem, and we may not be Jews, but 
I'm convinced that Jesus looks at our world today and I believe he's still weeping. Even though we have the Bible and we can read how the story ends, most people on earth today have the wrong idea about who Jesus is and what it was that Jesus came to do. What is it that some folks who is it some people think Jesus is? If, if we ask a majority of people, who is Jesus and, and, and what does he do? And as Christ followers, what do, what do Christians do? What, what's our job? I think one of the first things people would say is, well, just like Jesus healed people and fed people, I think the church ought to pray for the sick and, and clothe the needy and and feed the hungry. Take care of us. I think also they would say, I think Jesus ought to solve our problems. You know, we live in an age where people don't want to accept responsibility for anything that's wrong. If there's something wrong in our lives, if we do something wrong, it's someone else's fault. And that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Remember, Adam says, when, Eve, or when God said, why did you eat the fruit? Adam says, well, that woman you gave me, she made me do it. And Eve said, well, that serpent made me. People today, in Jesus' day, they wanted Jesus to solve their problems, heal their sick, fix the issues, fix the social issues. And even some church people, they think that's the main reason the church is in existence is to take care of all the social issues and the social problem. Can I tell you that as Christians, we should help feed the sick, or feed the poor. And we should pray for the sick, and we should be interested in social things. But Jesus' primary reason for coming, Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. The primary purpose of the church is to preach the gospel, preach the good news to lost people. People want others to fix their problems. People want the church to fix their problems. Pay my electric bill, buy my supper, buy me gas. But we're not at all concerned about our soul. People want Jesus to be the great equalizer. You know, when we get desperate enough, we turn to Jesus. When we get broke enough, we turn it over to the Lord. When we or our child or a spouse or a friend, if we're sick enough, we, we turn to Jesus. If somebody knocks us down hard enough, we turn to Jesus for relief. Just as the Jews wanted Jesus to be their great equalizer against Rome, we want Jesus to be our great equalizer against whatever enemy we face. When times are bad, Lord help me. When disaster strikes, oh my God. We don't care much for a Savior. We certainly don't care for a Lord. But we wouldn't mind somebody to bail us out of the mess we find ourselves in sometimes, would we? Some people in our community would say Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great moral man. But that's all. He wasn't God. He wasn't a prophet. 
C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either who he says he is or he's the greatest liar and fraud that the world's ever known. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus is either a liar, he lied about everything he said, he's a lunatic, he's crazy, or he's Lord. There's no other choice. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Many say that Christianity, Christianity is just one of many ways to get to God. Jesus is just one of many ways to get to God. Many believe that Christianity is only one out of many acceptable religions. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Jesus can't be a great teacher and a liar at the same time. Either Jesus is everything he says he is, and if he's all that, he is Lord. Amen? Amen. Or he's a liar. He's not a good man at all. He's a fraud. He's a con man. Jesus can't be a great teacher and be a liar at the same time. Tell you something else about Jesus, a misconception, and this is only a partial misconception. Some people want Jesus to be their Savior. I don't want to go to hell, so I trust Jesus as my Savior. And you know, that's a good thing. That's a happy thing, but it's not the only thing. The Jews were accepting enough as Jesus as their Savior when it came to Rome. But they cared nothing about their sins. It wasn't enough. It made Jesus weep. The way they treated Jesus, it made him weep. May I dare suggest that if your acceptance of Jesus stopped at accepting him as your Savior, Jesus is still weeping over you today. You know why? Because Jesus wants to not only be your Savior, he also wants to be your Lord. He wants to be the Lord of your life. A big part of becoming a Christian is recognizing that you're a sinner. That you're dead in trespasses and sins. Another part is recognizing and accepting that Jesus came and died to be your sacrifice for your sins and to allow you to receive God's forgiveness of those sins. But to stop there is not true repentance. True repentance recognizes Jesus for who he is. Jesus is more than Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. This passage declares Jesus, King Jesus, and he is all that. To be in the center of God's will, we need to turn our lives over to Jesus and let him be Lord of our lives. And when we trust Jesus and accept Jesus, as Lord of our lives, guess what happens? Then he can start to heal us. Then he can start to feed us. Then he can start to help us solve our problems and teach us. People want Jesus to solve their problems, but their greatest need is a savior of their sins. That's their biggest problem is a sin problem. The biggest problem in our world is 
It's not guns, alcohol, war. The biggest problem of our wor in our world is sin. All these other things are just symptoms of sin. We need a Savior that will save us from our sins. And we need a Savior that will be Lord of our lives. And when we turn our lives over to Jesus, we'll find our purpose. When we read of Palm Sunday, and that's today, by the way, it's called Palm Sunday. When we read about Palm Sunday, even though it happened long ago, can I remind us that its ramifications are still felt for us today? This same Jesus, just like in Palm Sunday, he was declared king on Sunday. He was crucified on Friday. That crowd that rejected him on Friday and says crucify him, that was a crowd in Jerusalem primarily made up of religious leaders' people. That was their folks. There are a lot of churches today that are celebrating Palm Sunday. A lot of people celebrating Palm Sunday. Can I tell you by Friday, a lot of people that are celebrating Palm Sunday today will crucify Jesus again by Friday because of sin. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Is he your Savior? 